So like if you tell yourself that you're just the type of person who doesn't like vegetables, well, guess what? You're never going to eat healthy. And it's probably not true. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Today, we're talking with Daria Rose. She's an author, blogger, and neuroscience PhD. We're going to be talking about the psychology of habits and habit formation, how to use your own psychology against yourself to make habits that stick, why traditional willpower-based habits like dieting don't work, and new mindsets surrounding habits that will help us create good ones more easily and break old patterns that no longer serve us. Don't be fooled. This is a habit and psychology episode dressed up as a health episode. I hope you enjoy it and learn from it. We're glad to have you with us here today at AOC, so enjoy this episode with Daria Rose. And by the way, if you're new to the show, we'd love to send you some top episodes and the AOC Toolbox. That's where we discuss concepts like reading body language and nonverbal communication, the science of attraction, negotiation techniques, networking, mentorship, influence, persuasion tactics, and everything else that we teach here at The Art of Charm. In the U.S., just text CHARMED to 33444, that's C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444. Everywhere else, go to theartofcharm.com. Also at theartofcharm.com slash podcast, you can find the full show notes for this and all previous episodes of the show. All right, here's Daria Rose. The reason I wanted to talk to you today is because, well, not only have you written a book on the subject, of course, but you're also a neuroscience PhD, and that's an unusual angle at which to come at the problem of health, psychology, weight loss, whatever, we're gonna be talking about healthy habits here. It seems unusual and yet it's so, so appropriate. Usually when we hear from diet experts, their qualifications are, I work out a lot or something like that, (laughs) right? Yeah. It seems very appropriate that you know how the brain works given that all of the mistakes that we're making with all the crap that we're eating and all the exercising that we're not doing generally comes from some sort of mindset. Is that the theory here? Absolutely right. And it's, it's even more complex than that. Your brain is where all the decisions happen. And fundamentally, this is a behavioral problem. So if you're starving and you're low blood sugar, that's happening in your brain. That's going to cause you to make bad decisions. I wish I could say that this was a master plan of mine that I was going to like, I'm going to solve health with the brain. But it was sort of dumb luck that I was interested in neuroscience and happened to be studying neuroscience and also on the side was like suffering from dieting for my entire life. And then found a solution that happened to integrate the two. You say suffering from dieting, and that that's that couldn't be more appropriate. Well, first of all, I don't know many people that do diets and are healthy. I know people who have a specific diet that is healthy, but I don't know very many people who are doing dieting to make it into a verb that are actually achieving the results that they want, keeping the weight off, or just having habit change. And people are listening to this right now and they're going, I don't need a dieting show. This is not really going to be a dieting show per se. We're gonna talk about habit change here. At least that's the direction I wanna steer it. But I'd love to hear about what you mean by suffering through dieting, because I think a lot of people can probably relate to that. Yeah, dieting is the worst. It is the absolute worst. You're starving all the time, so you can't do anything really well, because you're always distracted. You can't be social. You're like the weirdo at dinner. <laughs> it's like, like, oh, I'll have the steamed chicken breast and the broccoli with no no butter. And blood. like, it ruins your life. Food is so pervasive that dieting is really a bummer. But on top of that, it also doesn't work at all. Like it actually backfires. We have really good data, really good science that explains that if you go on a diet, you're more, more likely to gain weight over the long term than to lose weight. So 
yeah, it's awful and it doesn't work. So it's pretty much the worst thing that was ever told. Right. We tend to bounce back, rebound where I originally wasn't sure if that was the case, but now you're saying we have very good data that shows, look, when you do this, the weight comes back. And is that because of metabolism or what? What's the reasoning behind that? You know, that's a really good question, and it's not entirely solved yet. So this is still being debated pretty widely in the media. There was recently a story about The Biggest Loser and how a huge majority of the people that like lost all this weight gained it back and their metabolism did get slower. So that's certainly a hypothesis that somehow either a lot of weight loss or rapid weight loss or something messes with your metabolism. But there's also a huge amount of psychological data that people who have a history of restricting themselves with specific foods tend to overcompensate for that later. Like our brains were not wired to constantly make ourselves suffer. They do not like that at all. And when you do that to yourself, you end up creating all these horrible habits. Like people who diet are are way more likely to go into binging later and have all these super unhealthy relationships with food, uh, largely because of the way they have looked at and moralized and their mindset around food in general has become so out of whack with the way our brains healthily form habits. So it's, it's you know, it, it, there's probably a lot of factors going on there. And we aren't sure, but I know that a lot of these things are at play. And at least some of them, at least the psychological ones, we have some control over. Yeah, this makes sense. And frankly, from an evolutionary psychology perspective, or at least from a regular psychology perspective, a survival perspective, it makes sense that if you starve yourself for three months, that the second you turn off the regulator or the the governor off, when you turn the governor off, your body says, hey, look, feast or famine, now it's time to feast, and so you do, and then your body goes, well, I better store all this stuff. So there's psychological components of things that are not unique, say, to human history, where you starve yourself for a while, not because you're on a diet, but because there's no stinking food, and then you binge when you can in order to store it. So it's probably both hormonal metabolic as well as just psychological. There's probably a lot of things at play here, and so it's no surprise that this hasn't all been figured out just yet, especially the way that we look at dieting in the United States especially, it makes a lot of sense. You mentioned pre-show that you're an overachiever, so you're a great student. Were you as good at dieting as well? I mean, were you one of those kids who's like, were you doing this at a young age? Because I know you did ballet and everything as well. Yeah, it's so obnoxious. I started dieting at the age of 11, and this was because of my mother. So I grew up in the 90s in Southern California in like the Baywatch era. (laughs) This was like, this was not good. And my mom did every single diet under the sun. And I remember one morning, I was 11, I was in sixth grade, and I came into the kitchen and my mom was like blending something and it looked like a milkshake. And I was like, what's that? And she was like, oh, it's just this diet shake that's supposed to make me lose weight. And in my brain, I'm like, that sounds like the best thing in the universe because I'm picturing a delicious chocolate milkshake and then she's telling me it can also like make you thin. And I was just at that age where like I knew that that was a thing you wanted to be as a woman. So I like got on slim fast and my mother let me do this, which is awful, but she didn't know any better. And I said, so, yeah, I started dieting then essentially. And that was when it started and it just went on. I've done everyone, like every single diet. I mean, I stopped about 10 years ago. So the new ones after that, I haven't done but. I've done all of them. And yeah, I was awesome at them. I ate zero fat for the last two years of high school. I was so freaking skinny. It was awful. And so it works. Like I never got really overweight. I would yo-yo a lot, but I did this for 15 years. And at the end of it, it didn't feel like the end. It felt like my 
personal private hell. But, you know, somewhere in the middle there, I was just like, wait a minute. Like at some point I started running marathons. Like I have like tons of willpower, tons of discipline. Yeah. I was getting straight A's. I'm just like one of those like type A overachiever perfectionist girls. Right. And it doesn't work. Like I was still miserable. No matter how skinny I was, I was still miserable. And there was no end in sight. There's no winning. You can't win. You're either miserable or you're skinny. Were your parents worried about you getting really thin? I mean, it seems like SoCal or not, if I'm a dad, I'm looking at my daughter, I'd be like, hey, you know, have a sandwich. This is freaking me out here. <laughs> Great question. Nobody's ever asked me that before. Uh, so this is really messed up. But like my mom was really proud of me. And she would tell everybody how great I looked. And I loved that. Uh, my dad was worried. My dad, actually, he was the only reason I would really eat. I would eat in front of him because I knew that he would worry about me. So like the food I ate was like basically to make my dad not worry about me. Yeah, he was worried about me. Did you replace food with some other bad habits? Because I know a lot of people who they don't eat a lot, but they're like hoovering cocaine or what. I don't expect you to do that at age 11. But I know a lot of people that do really bad stuff instead of eating because your brain wants it's got to get those good feelings, right? You got to do something to get the dopamine and your brain's dying for that. And so they find other ways to do it, smoking or whatever. You know, there's all kinds of stuff that falls in. Yeah, I lived on coffee and cigarettes. And this is in high school, which is totally disgusting. And yeah, I definitely dabbled in some diet pills in college and some later stuff. So yeah, not good. And this is one of the things that was one of my first big epiphanies. I was not focused on my own health at all. I thought I was invincible. You know, I didn't think anything really bad could happen to me. And so I didn't think I needed nutrition. I thought if I took a multivitamin, I could starve myself and be fine. And, you know, my hair was really thin. My nails were brittle. I had a horrible skin. It was it was awful. Right. You're basically malnourished at this point. How thin were you? Do you remember at all? When I think about this, it really freaks me out, actually. And I'm actually upset that nobody really sounded the alarm and, and got me talking to a doctor or something earlier. But I was the exact same height I am now. And I, and I actually think that that's connected. I think that I stopped growing. I, I stopped growing when I was like 12 years old. And I think probably because I started dieting around then. So I'm the exact same height now that I was in high school. And I was 40 pounds lighter. Oh, my God. Crazy. Because I'm skinny now. Right. You look like a normal human female right now because 40 pounds is, you know, when you lose 10 pounds, people go, did you lose weight? You look great. So if you lost four times that much and you look normal right now. Yeah, I'm not just normal right now. Most people consider me pretty tiny right now. Yeah. So I was I was like well under 100 pounds. It was not it was not a healthy place to be. That's terrifying. All honesty, I probably had some mild version of anorexia that it was never diagnosed. So. The problem is you, you thought you were doing it right and people around you told you that you were. Well, that's what's super messed up. Yeah, like I, I completely thought that this was the right thing to do. It's crazy that dieting is a game that you can't win. You mentioned this specifically and it seems really unfortunate because good health is critical to happiness. It's critical to success in your, I mean, it's almost the goal of your life for the most part, right? I mean, we, we mentioned things like health and happiness. Ancient cultures have this in every well-wish from China all the way to Africa, they're talking about health and fertility and things like that. And these are the things that are affected by this. And yet still, even in 21st century America and Europe for that matter, given all of the technology that we have, people are still not getting this right. Yeah, so that was some, one of the big epiphanies that happened for me. Like, you know, at some point I realized that, I don't know why I was so focused on being thin. I mean, obviously like culture sort of makes that a thing that we should strive for. But at some point I realized like I was so miserable and I started a new approach and 
basically what happened was I was sick of it. I was totally sick of it. I thought I was doing it right. I was doing everything right. And I was still miserable and and I still wasn't happy with my body. And I really felt like it still wasn't working. So at this point, I'd started my PhD program and, you know, I, I was in a neuroscience major. So I had taken a lot of biology classes and I could read scientific papers. And that's a lot of training to get to that point. So I was like, you know what? I am going to figure this out. So I would spend my weekends just diving into the diet literature. And at that point, I was actually still trying to find the best diet. Like I thought it would maybe low carb, but I wasn't sure. I hadn't really had that much success on low carb either. I mean, for a while I did, but whatever. And I learned a couple of things. One is that diets don't work that dieting is a better way to gain weight than to lose weight. And that was a big shock because that was frustrating. It made sense because that was my experience. But to actually read the science saying that was like kind of an eye opener. I was like, okay, well, you know, the first rule of holes is when you're in one, stop digging. <laughs> so I was like, okay, well, maybe I should try a new approach. And then the, the second thing was that people just focus on real food and focus on lifelong habits. So I decided to try this as a experiment on myself but with the goal of weight loss. But then once I started it and I started actually eating food like a few times a day, which I hadn't been doing in years and focusing on real foods that actually have flavor. I mean, because the difference between going to the farmer's market and buying in-season produce and like going home and cooking it yourself and making something delicious versus going to like the freezer aisle of Whole Foods and buying like frozen meals that are like low calorie is night and day. And so I had this experience where I was suddenly not hungry. I was suddenly not constantly like fighting with myself about wanting to like eat something less or eat different or eat something better. Like the food I was eating was amazing and I loved it. And not only did I not gain weight, which was my first fear, was that like if I start actually eating food, I'm going to like gain weight because I hadn't been doing that in so long. Not only did I not gain weight, but I lost weight and I, I kept losing weight. And the more I ate and the more I focused on health, the more I was happy. Like once that change happened, like it was like my entire world priorities shifted because suddenly the weight loss just seemed like a bonus. And I actually got to like face head on how miserable I really was chasing that sort of goal that I couldn't even reach. It seems like the science of psychology, of course, shows us that the critical factor in long term success here will be the way that we think about this. Think about food, think about exercise, think about I don't even want to say dieting because it's a totally different thing, creating a mindset for success when it comes to this. And this sort of habit change is a great topic to attack with food because so many people struggle with this. People have every excuse under the sun why they can't eat healthy or why they can't exercise. It seems like that is mostly just a veneer slash whipped cream on the turd sandwich that is an ineffective approach to creating healthy habits. Right. And that's exactly the thing. It's like what happened to me and what is necessary to happen if you want to have a long-term permanent change in your health is you have to switch what your goals are from something that you should do to something you want to do. Because the way that psychology works in general or the way that habit forming works in general is in order for a habit to form, it has to create a loop, a habit loop. And the only way that happens is if there's a reward, right? And it can't be some like vague reward, like, you know, you're going to save money to go on vacation or you're going to reach a number on a scale or some like unrelated future thing isn't good enough. It has to be a reward that's intrinsic to what you're doing. What do you mean by that? Because I'm thinking, 
a reward might be like, I can fit into my high school jeans or whatever. That's what you hear about that all the time. You see it in copy on the internet. Right. So the way that the popular mindset around dieting is, is you struggle, you sacrifice, you work hard, you restrict yourself, hit the gym. And one day you'll get this amazing thing. You'll have six pack abs, you'll fit into size zero, you'll weigh whatever. And that's sort of the model that we've all sort of culturally decided to believe. But that is a willpower model. That is a restrictive model. And that is a model that is destined to fail because willpower, while super awesome for short-term goals, like, you know, if you only want to lose five pounds for a specific event, you could totally use willpower to do that. If you want to work really hard on a work project or study really hard and pass a test, willpower is great. And we tend to over-rely on it, though, because for long-term projects, it inevitably fails. And the reason for that is because it's sort of like a muscle. It gets tired. And you've probably experienced this. It's called uh, ego depletion or decision fatigue. But the more decisions you make, the more willpower you exercise, the more you try to get something. By the end of the day, you're depleted. You're, you're tired. You don't want to do that anymore. While we do have this sort of really awesome human resource of willpower, if you're relying on it long term, and especially to torture yourself over something as important as food long term, it's going to break down eventually. And what happens in those cases, like we were saying, you binge. It's called counter-regulatory eating. Or I love that the scientists often refer to it as the what the hell effect. You tend to overeat <laughs> and sort of undo all the work you've done and make it even worse. But the opposite of that, the opposite approach is a habit-building approach. And habits are amazing because they're automatic things. You get triggered by something, you know, something reminds your brain, do this now. Then you go through sort of a mindless activity and then something about it is rewarding. And that's why it has to be about the act itself. So if there is a reward, then it'll reinforce the trigger and it'll become sort of an automatic loop in your brain that you sort of go through on autopilot. And your brain loves stuff like this because it doesn't have to think so hard. When you think about that, that's the way you want your brain to work for health. You want it to sort of be on autopilot and you don't want to have to be fighting with it all the time. And that means that you need to have intrinsic rewards in the things you eat and in the physical activities you do. And that basically means you have to enjoy it. You know, it means that you have to like health, the healthy foods you eat, you have to enjoy. Like if you like really hate broccoli, like you shouldn't force yourself to eat broccoli, at least not at the beginning, because that's not a winning strategy. And the same thing with exercise. Right. So this sort of fundamental flaw with many approaches that we see here is focusing on that willpower or restriction, as you call it, basically the no pain, no gain kind of mindset. The problem being that even though this makes sense at some level, you just get tired of it. So therefore, it only works short term. And the problem being that health is a long term goal, not a short term. I want to look good by next month because I'm taking photos for my wedding type thing. There's a difference between having a healthy ish appearance versus actually being healthy. So we can't rely on that willpower long term. Exactly. And we tend to think that that's the way to go. And it's not. It's a losing strategy. And so habit forming would then be the longer term solution. And you're argument here is that, which is hopefully science-backed, is that willpower is maybe necessary to form a habit, especially at the beginning, but willpower is not necessary to execute a habit per se, because a habit essentially kind of executes itself by default, right? We build that as a part of our default programming. So I want to separate habits from exercising willpower every single day to repeat an action or to create a pattern. 
Yeah, exactly. So that's the goal. And like once you start seeing that as the goal, you can approach it entirely differently. And it becomes sort of a fun game rather than this sort of self-flagellating exercise that we tend to all go through all the time. Okay. So in habits, you're saying only form in the presence of this intrinsic reward. So like when I started running and hated it, I forced myself, I put my running gear on and then went outside and then I gave myself permission to go back to sleep if I really wanted to because it's early as freaking freezing in Michigan. I'm gonna go run on snow and ice. And then after a while, I couldn't get out of bed and get ready and go run fast enough because I was some sort of opiate addict, you know, of my own endorphins here. Is that what you mean by intrinsic reward versus me saying if I just keep running every morning, eventually I'll have a six pack and find a nice girl and be happy? Yeah, exactly. So if you talk to people, I call people who eat like me foodists, that's what we are. But if you talk to any of the people who do have exercise habit, you know, people tend to think that people who go to the gym every day, they're just like a different breed or something. It's like, no, 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 not at all. These people have just First, I mean, you have to get over the hump. And that's sort of what we talked about, what you mentioned earlier of there is some sort of energy involved in setting up a habit in the first place. But once a habit gets formed and it's running smoothly, people get addicted to these things in the good way. People who work out and like they can't function if they don't work out, you know, like they describe it as like they're tired, they're groggy, they're cranky until they get their workout in then they feel okay. And the same thing, like I've had readers tell me that they crave salads, like when they travel or whatever to countries where maybe fresh vegetables aren't as easy to get, or maybe during the winter when they're harder to get. If you're craving salads and workouts, you've won, right? Right. That's where you want to be. No kidding. Habit building, really easy to explain, a little bit harder to do, unfortunately. There are a lot of little subtle psychological factors and roadblocks and things like that. You mentioned earlier that we need to stop moralizing food choices. What does that actually mean? I don't think I've ever heard that. Oh, this is one of my favorite topics. So this is actually something that comes directly from the cultural conditioning around the no pain, no gain, willpower mentality of getting healthy, right? Which is that, well, in order to get healthy, I should eat this, that, this, and this, and I shouldn't eat that, that, and that. And it's like, these ones are good, those ones are bad. And If I eat the good ones, then I'm good. And if I eat the bad ones, then I'm bad. And so there's this sort of moral component to doing what's right. And that idea can really crush people and can really form some like a belief structure in your in your brain that can make it really hard to make progress because you become sort of this all or nothing feast and famine sort of mentality. And that's one of the problems that comes from that mindset. There's this idea that like some foods are innately good and some foods are innately bad. Right, like burgers and fries bad, salad with dressing on the side good. Exactly. People will do this with whole categories of food like carbs, (laughs) right? Or like fat or meat or whatever. And when you moralize your food choices, basically it makes it so that you're always using willpower because you're preventing yourself from being bad. Right, okay, because you have to resist the choice. Yeah, you have to resist the choice from ordering it, which is essentially what happens every time most of us go to a restaurant. Like, oh, I really want this burger, but oh, I'm gonna hate myself later. We hear that, it's in commercials all the time. Right, and so then what inevitably happens? You eventually let yourself have it. Well, you order it because you really want it, and then afterwards you go, I'm such a fat piece of shit, or at least that's what I do. I don't know what everybody else does, you know? And then you're like, oh, 
Yeah, and you feel sick. Right. And, so, and for some people, on top of that, they feel guilty, and then they'll binge the whole next day and maybe for a week or two. Then you get those floodgates where you're like, well, today is already screwed, so I might as well have frozen yogurt, and I might as yeah. well then eat this candy because I already had a burger for dinner. So today is shot, and then the next day it's like, well, you know, the whole holiday season is shot. I mean, we have these brownies here. It's the holidays. You know, we got to do that. People constantly do that. And I can't even count the number of times that myself and my family and friends, you know, it's January. I don't even need to anecdotally explain this. Just go to a gym in January and notice how <laughs> crowded it was compared to December. And the point should be proven because everybody's trying, not just New Year's resolutions, everybody's trying to work off what they did before because they're having one giant, oh my God, I'm so fat, just like you do when you go to the restaurant and you order that burger. And there's so many things here that I think everyone can relate to, but it does seem like a really dangerous path to go down because you can really start to beat yourself up and it can become part of your identity that you're just an unhealthy eater. And I know tons of people like that who just, they go, yeah, you know, I eat like crap, but I only eat one meal a day. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's worse than eating three meals a day. And that's a critical point. When it starts becoming part of your identity, then you like find ways to make excuses for the bad behavior. So like if you tell yourself that you're just the type of person who doesn't like vegetables, well, guess what? You're never going to eat healthy. And it's probably not true also. It's the same idea as sort of moralizing. It's sort of, it starts generalizing to an all or nothing game that's almost like zero sum. And it's almost never, it reflects reality. So the way to undo, for example, the moralizing food is realizing that there's no food that's innately good or bad. There are foods that you can eat that help your health, that are very nutritious, that make you feel good, that make you feel energized after you eat them. And there are foods you eat just because they're freaking delicious. And you know if you eat too much of it, you might feel sick. And sometimes you might eat too much of it anyway. But it's not bad. There's nothing wrong with inherently enjoying something or eating something for that reason. But when you start creating these dichotomies, then you set yourself up you, you set yourself up for these traps. And the identity thing can come back to that same issue. It's like chances are you come to my house. If, there, if there's a vegetable you don't like, come to my house. I will make it for you so that you like it. But there's a couple caveats. One, I have to get the vegetable in the right season. And two, I have to cook it in a way that is something probably new to you, something different. But if you just have the mentality that, you know what, I will never like that, then you're basically just setting yourself up to fail and you're not actually reflecting reality. And so you don't give yourself any room to grow or to develop the things that you actually say you want. Jason, we're going to Daria's house for kale and broccoli. Are you down? I'm down, I'm down. Yeah, I mean, honestly, there are some things where I just don't believe they can be made to taste good, but I'll, I'll take your word for it. We'll come back to that maybe. You know, speaking of identity, we had General Stanley McChrystal come on the show just recently and he is well known. In all these circles, he does interviews and stuff like that, or people talk about him and it's in articles and he only eats one meal a day and he still kind of does that. And I asked him about it and he said, yeah, I don't do it for health reasons. I don't do it because I think it's a good habit. And he goes, all these entrepreneurs and business guys are always harping on, oh, you, you only eat one meal a day, how, this is so great. And it goes back to your earlier point about the no pain, no gain thing being unhealthy. Even he says, the reason I do that is because I can't be sitting in a combat theater in Afghanistan chowing down while I'm with a bunch of soldiers who haven't eaten in a day because they've been in the middle of a firefight, but I'm the general, so I get to eat. He's like, it's a bad habit, and yet it's one of the things that's held up as look how tough and awesome this guy is, he barely ever even eats. 
that's become a part of his identity such that now that he's retired, he's still only eating one meal a day, and he, he kind of just got used to it, but also I think there's a part of us and of him that has moralized this as, well, if I start eating more than one meal a day, it means I've lost some of my grit, right? And that's it's not healthy because we do that to ourselves all the time. There's women out there that think, I have to look like I did in high school or college. I see this at the gym all the time. These guys that probably haven't worked out in 20 years, they're there doing bench press every day because they wanna look like they did in 1987 or something. And this all goes back to this sort of moralistic view of what we have to do or what we have to be. And they're not creating habits, right? These guys probably go to the gym five or six days in one week and then we don't see them till Q2 of 2017. And this is really, really bad. It's probably well acknowledged, but you're the doctor here. If you're not creating good habits, you're essentially just creating bad habits. Does that make sense? There's probably something about that. I haven't thought about it. So much of habit formation happens subconsciously. We don't really think about it. We sort of bounce. I mean, we don't think about most of our days. I, I read a statistic somewhere from a very good scientist that something like 90% of our food choices are sort of automatic, thoughtless, like mindless, that we don't even actually register them as a decision. Like, that's just how it is, you know? And when you're in an environment like, Western culture where everything is cueing you to eat bad, eat more, eat junk food, eat cheap, eat whatever, eat bigger, supersize. Like that's not a recipe for winning. And I think one of the hidden strengths that we have isn't necessarily willpower, but the recognition that we can engineer our habits and that if we do it consciously, and we're not super judgmental with ourselves about it because it's, it's trial and error process. It really is. Then we can create this life that we want in a way that actually works for us. Now, you mentioned earlier that every habit has a, a trigger, an action, and a reward. I wanna outline that pattern a little bit more. Tell us what the triggers are, tell us what the actions are, and tell us what types of rewards we gotta use. We sort of mentioned that intrinsic motivator, but uh, let's put it all together in one place. Yeah, so I think of it more of like a, it's a circle, like it's a, it's a loop. So the trigger can be, anything. For instance, maybe the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning is you go into the kitchen and you make some coffee and you have breakfast. Or, you know, in the afternoon, let's say you're getting tired and you're working, but you, you need a break. And so you go to the, you go to the kitchen and you open the fridge and you get something, or you go to the cafe and, and you buy something. Like, you may think you're choosing to go <laughs> get that snack, but really it's just your brain sort of being like, I'm tired, I want a break. And so so triggers can be in in many forms. They can either be something physical, like that you see something on TV and it makes you crave a soda, or it can be an emotion, like I'm tired, I'm anxious, I'm upset, I need comfort. And these force sort of action loops in us that have been reinforced with rewards in some way. And those rewards can also be anything, but they're usually intrinsic. Like I said, they are usually intrinsic to the activity. So maybe you feel good after eating something because it's sweet and rewarding and reminds you of grandma or something, or I don't know, you just, you were hungry and now you're not hungry, so you feel better. The action in there can sort of be anything as long as the trigger and the reward are the same. And sometimes you can replace a trigger or reward. So there's sort of three places that you have the opportunity to manipulate your habits that you actually have control over. Well, let's say two, because I don't know if you can control whether or not something's rewarding for you a little bit, but less so than the trigger and the action itself. 
Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to Kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash charm. Just go to Indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I guess you could build some sort of reward system over time. For example, I used to hate vegetables of all kinds, and maybe my taste buds have just evolved a little bit since I'm older, but I basically told myself broccoli, Brussels sprouts, kale, and all these weird Chinese vegetables that are green leafy things like yam leaves, I can't remember what they're called in English, but I've basically told myself these are really tasty. And I forced myself to eat them for a long time, willpower, right? But 
now I actually do like them. I mean, my brain thinks yum when I eat them. And I remember what I didn't like about them originally, and I just don't care anymore. Like, I still get a little bit of that, I guess, what is it, dopamine from eating in general, and I just basically convinced myself that this is what I have. I feel like the brain adapts a little bit to that because, well, for one thing, you get rid of all the artificial crap that you're putting in your food and your tastes will change. But also the fact is your brain will reward you for eating anything generally, right? And so if you can kind of reset those expectations, then you should be able to build a healthy-ish habit based on that. To go back to your early point about triggers, do the triggers have to be subconscious? I guess they would be, otherwise you're just using willpower, right? If you have an alarm on your phone that says eat salad that rings every day during lunch, that still requires willpower. So the trigger has to be subconscious. Can you give an example of a subconscious trigger? Because I'm trying, I'm ha having trouble placing this. Yeah, we have to trigger something subconscious. So I really wanted to develop the habit of, I used to eat really fast. And I think a lot of people who have dieted in the past or restricted their food intake in some way tend to eat really fast. And I'd read a bunch that chewing your food thoroughly was important and eating mindfully was important. So this was a habit I wanted to develop. And it was hard. It was really hard because, I mean, if you think about it with mindfulness, it's intrinsically difficult to remember. That's the point. Right. Try to remember. Right. So if you're eating mindfully, you don't know that you're not mindful. So I would try to like set an alarm right before lunch and be like, remember to eat mindfully. Never worked. Never worked because I'd be in the middle of something and then I'd go to lunch five minutes later and then I would have totally forgotten by then because my brain went to something else first. So I thought about this trigger thing for a long time and it took me like six months to figure this out. But eventually I realized that what I really wanted to do was chew my food more. So that's the action. I wanted to chew more. And, and I was like, well, what happens? I was like trying to think, what happens immediately before you chew? I was like, well, I take some food with my fork and I like, like sort of stab my plate and get some food and then I put it in my mouth. What I realized that I was doing was that I was stabbing my food and chewing it. And while I was chewing my food, I was stabbing the new bite. Your mouth is full and you're chewing and you're like preparing your next bite. Ah, uh, yeah, right. Yeah, I shovel food into my, I, if there's a speed eating contest, I would dominate. I can eat real fast. Yeah, I, I probably used to, would have given you a run for your money in, in the old days. Yeah, I'm gonna back him up on that. I've never seen anybody eat as fast as Jordan does. Yeah, it's kind of ridiculous. It's almost like watching a little kid who just wants to go back and play with his toys eat. It's just, I am housing that food. And I remember even when I was in high school, I was an exchange student in Germany and the host father had been in the German army and he goes, you'd make a good soldier. I've never seen anyone eat that fast. He goes, even when we were eating in a tank deployed to the Czech Republic, because it was like an uprising or something, he goes, I've never seen people eat that fast. And he, and so, but yeah, we can have a kale speed eating contest when we get to your uh, house <laughs> for dinner. Did you have a lot of siblings? No, I didn't. I'm an only child. So it's weird because I had no real reason to go and eat that quickly. I just, I just do. <laughs> yeah, sometimes people with a lot of siblings eat fast and dieters, right. people who have dieted tend to eat fast. But, you know, I'd love to dig into that one with you one day. Yeah. Why do dieters eat fast? I'm curious. It doesn't make sense. Seems like if you're on a diet, you'd want to eat really slowly so that, you know, feel more full, like your eating takes longer. Yeah, I don't know exactly. My theory is that it's because you spend so much time hungry that you're, once you let yourself eat, your body's just like, ah, give me all the food. Right, or there's guilt around eating, so you just want to get it over with because it, maybe it doesn't feel good to eat because it's like you're giving up. Yeah, interesting and sad. Back to the example of the trigger. 
though. So I, you know, I was like plowing through this food and I realized I was preparing my next bite. That was the reason I was swallowing my food too fast because I had another bite ready. I was like, oh, time to eat again. So I would like halfway chew my food, swallow it mostly unchewed and then shovel another fork full of food in my mouth. And so I realized that this was something I could work on. And so what I decided to do is I started to just ask myself while I was preparing another bite of food, just one simple question, is there food in your mouth right now? And if the answer was yes, then I would make myself put my fork down. And that was actually the trigger I needed because once my fork was down, I no longer felt the impulse to chew faster and swallow. Right, if you're holding the fork still, you're just waiting for the opportunity to shovel something else in there, especially if it's already got food on it. It's a trigger. Ah, I'm gonna try this. Let me ask you this. Can you guess what the reward is for this particular habit? For the slowing down habit? Making everyone wait for you? (laughs) I don't know, I don't know. Torturing everybody you love. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. No, so this is a crazy thing. And this is why I know this is a habit for me now. It makes me super uncomfortable to eat fast now. And so now I chew my food very thoroughly and I've, I've developed this habit. But sometimes I'm in a hurry and sometimes I'm thinking of something else and sometimes I find myself starting to eat quickly again. And what happens, the way I notice I'm doing it, if my mind is elsewhere, when I swallow food that has not been chewed well enough, it is so uncomfortable now. It's like feels weird in my throat. It's like all pokey. Oh, right. It's almost like you're choking. Yeah, totally. Oh, I can see that. I can see that. So it's weird. It's like I had to develop enough of a trigger to remind myself to chew enough so that I could develop a reward about it. And now it's a habit. This makes sense. And the rewards, it seems like they have to be related, closely related to the action and not something that you are giving yourself, right? Not like if I lose 10 pounds, I'll book a vacation. It seems like the reward is very mechanical and simple. Exactly. That's what I mean when I say intrinsic reward. So you can't like impose a reward and you can't really impose a trigger. They have to be sort of intimately related to the action. Right. Okay. So extrinsic would be I'll book a trip to Hawaii when I look good in my swimsuit, whereas intrinsic is It feels good to swallow because I've chewed my food thoroughly, which is weirder sounding and much smaller and frankly cheaper than going to Hawaii. And yet probably a little bit of a trickier habit to build because right, it doesn't require only willpower. What doesn't work, and you know, I tried this too, is like a lot of people say they eat until they're sick. And you know, even the knowledge that you'll be sick in 20 minutes if you eat too fast isn't enough. It's too far removed. It's too far away, right? Your brain doesn't even recognize this type of thing. So what about those people who go, all right, cool, listen to Daria and Jordan, that was so cool, I'm gonna stop eating ice cream, I'm gonna start eating breakfast, I'm gonna make sure I eat healthy food, I'm gonna go run every day, I'm gonna go to the gym every day. Basically, New Year's resolution people. What about that? Because I feel like when we set up small habits, if if somebody's listening to this and they go, I'm just gonna make sure that I eat vegetables at least once per day, they go, oh, that's not enough, right? People wanna take this extreme action. What do you think about that? Right. So that's a really common issue. And it's actually something that sort of something that happens as a result of some of that moralizing. Uh, Mm -hmm. We have this idea that we have to like do enough, like that we have to push super hard. Like, for instance, like I've had friends tell me that they want to like lose weight for their wedding or something and um, that they want to like run three or four times a week. It's like, well, that's great. Okay. (laughs) Like, how much are you running now? And they'll say like none. But well, I'm like, well, why don't you start by 
taking like a walk. Like, why don't you walk three times? Like, well, I'll never lose weight if I do that. <laughs> it's like, okay, that makes sense if you're looking at it from the dieting willpower perspective because the goal is quick goal achieval. But when you look at it from the habit perspective, the hard part is setting up the habit. And so that's actually what you want to focus on. You can always build on it. You can always do more. If you let not doing enough stop you, you're never going to get anywhere. Right. Because otherwise you got to take extreme action and then you try to do that and then you go, oh, this is such a pain or I won't do this. So you end up not building habits. Instead, you just give yourself a ton of stuff that saps all your willpower because you're trying to do 10 different things. Yeah. And then you feel guilty for it. And then you probably go in the closet and eat a bucket of cookies. Right, exactly. So <laughs> habits, if you do them in tiny little pieces, drop by drop, the habits should be easier to form and then, of course, last longer, therefore are preferable to then to just taking massive action per se. We talked about long-term habits, having a long-term impact on your health. What other sort of mindsets can we adopt for this? Maybe even some habits mixed in with these mindsets here. Like, it's not just about eating, right? It's not just about walking around the block. What are some of these concrete habits and mindsets that you have that are actually working for you and people that you work with uh, at Summer Tomato? When you approach something with the idea that nothing can change, that you are the way you are, you know, Carol Dweck wrote an amazing book called Mindset, where she talks about the difference between a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. And a fixed mindset is when you think, I'm just the way I am, I'm never going to change. The world is the way it is. And you sort of pick your battles based on that versus somebody who thinks to themselves, I don't like that yet. I don't know how to do that yet. I would like to develop that skill. It takes some effort. You need to bring that growth mindset to your health because it's a lot of trial and error. And we are completely conditioned to live in the most unhealthy way <laughs> possible. Like we're programmed to eat hyper processed junk food, sugar, fat, salt. That's what we grew up eating. So that's what we tend to like. We are told that there are people who are really good at things and there are people who are not good at things. And you might think that you don't like exercise or you may think that you don't like broccoli. And that makes it hard. If you come to your health with that attitude, it makes it hard to ever really make any progress because basically you're, you're forcing yourself into a situation where you have to use willpower. Instead, what I encourage people to do is more like what you did and think to yourself, it's possible to like this. You know, I might not like it right now, but I need to give it a chance. Or it's possible to become a cook. I can be somebody who cooks dinner for myself. Like this is something that it's a habit that cooking is a habit that I recommend to everyone because it's one of the best possible ways to take control of your health. But so many people are like, I can't cook. I hate cooking. I never learned to cook. I have no skill. They think, you know, it's a natural innate skill. They think they don't have time. There's a million reasons, but all those things are things you can work on. But if you don't have the mindset that those are work onable, then you're sort of screwed. Right. Yeah, of course. We've had Dr. Carol Dweck on the show as well. She is phenomenal. I mean, it's a simple concept in a way, and yet it's so profound when you realize that pretty much everything in your life is actually flexible. It also is a little uncomfortable because your excuses are basically stripped completely bare. <laughs> well, that's the whole point, right? Like you have to become comfortable with a little discomfort and realize that it won't kill you. Yeah, exactly. You hear that, Jordan? You can become a cook now. No, it's impossible. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> 
Luckily, my girlfriend and her father love to cook, so I'm, I'm just a mooch. I'm really good at mooching. I realize I could cook, it's just one of those things. And when I do cook, when people sort of make me do it, I enjoy it. I just, I'm not in the mood for another hobby, I'll stick to Chinese. The other benefit of this growth mindset is you can view yourself in many ways as a scientist testing new experiments on yourself, right? So you can kind of, like I did before, create a, a pattern in your brain that says, you do like vegetables. And more recently, you love going to the gym and doing these weird exercises that your trainer gave you that look really dangerous. I'd started doing powerlifting instead of just like curls while watching the basketball game and doing kettlebells and stuff. All the stuff that I thought, oh gosh, you know, I am not one of those guys that does X. And now I'm like, I am totally one of those guys that does this. And you can make yourself do it. It's just, it does require those gradual changes. Do you have sort of a process to create these small, different habits or changes or these actions and, and make them stick? Yeah, so you have to take this approach of being open to understand that everything is a process of trial and error. And what I hear from people all the time is that they'll want to accomplish some grandiose goal and they will fail. And then they will feel terrible about themselves and either not try it again or overcompensate in some way. And that's really a self-defeating cycle and it's not necessary. So instead I recommend, um, for instance, let, let's say you want to start like waking up in the morning earlier to, to go work out. Your gut may be to say something like, I'm just too tired. I can't do that. But there are things you can test to see if that is accurate. So, okay, if you're too tired, go to bed earlier. And you can like test the process of doing that. I've done this. I've wrote about this sort of recently. So when I tried to do this when I was in graduate school, I first realized I was too tired. So I started going to bed earlier. Uh, the next thing I realized is that the main reason I didn't want to get up in the morning was because it was winter and I didn't want to get up because it was freezing out and I was comfy, toasty, warm in my bed. And so eventually I started laying out my workout clothes like right next to the bed to solve that problem. And eventually I created a system where getting out of bed wasn't that hard. And that was really the problem. But what I had to be able to do was every single day that I failed to not tell myself, this is impossible, but to say, well, that didn't work. I better try something different. Whenever you try something new, you can think in your head, you can go through a, a checklist and ask yourself three questions. First question is, what did I try that worked successfully? What was successful? For instance, for my wake up time, I knew I wasn't tired anymore, but I still didn't want to get out of bed. So something worked, but I still wasn't succeeding at getting to the gym. Uh, then you can ask yourself, well, what failed? And in that case, I was too cold and I didn't want to get up. And the idea of like sort of sleepwalking through the dark to dig through my drawers just wasn't appealing. So I, then I asked myself the third question, which is what can you do different next time? And the next time I decided to lay my stuff out the night before so that when I got up in the morning, I could just put them right on and that worked. So if you go through this checklist, what worked, what didn't work, and what could I do differently next time, you turn a failure into a learning experience. And if you can learn from it, then it's not really a failure. You just haven't succeeded yet and you still can next time. Right, and since you can see little changes doing something, succeeding or failing, or a little bit of both usually, then you can start to see that that's how you get rid of that fixed mindset because you start to prove to yourself, well, I changed this and then I changed that and then I changed this other thing and those all worked. Why would this be any different? And some healthy, you call them home court habits, which I think is a great name, cooking and grocery shopping and eating vegetables. And I assume you put those in there because 
a lot of people, especially in Manhattan where you live, they don't cook and they don't grocery shop. So people are kind of under this mistaken perception that you can go to the grocery store and get ready-made food or you can go to a restaurant and you can get something quote-unquote healthy, even though the goal at the restaurant is to make you come back by giving you something that tastes good. So they're not gonna tell you how much salt and sugar and butter and all that stuff is really in there. You have to be able to control that yourself. Other habits, walking 10,000 steps a day, strength training, whatever, regular sleep, mindful eating like you talked about, eating breakfast. Is the jury still out on eating breakfast? Because there's a million people that say, breakfast is the most important meal of the day, and then there's a million and a half that say, screw breakfast, you know, I do this other crazy thing. Do you eat breakfast? I do eat breakfast. It's something that is important for me. But the thing about health is that everybody's different. So, I mean, if you're not eating breakfast, but you're overeating later in the day, and you just say, I'm not a breakfast person, I would say you should maybe consider that maybe eating breakfast would help you. But there are some people that eating breakfast just makes them eat more later. And if that's you, then maybe breakfast isn't the best for you. Right, so it's basically, again, going back to what you just said, testing this and seeing what works for you, that makes sense. One thing I thought was surprising in your home court habits is good relationships. Can you tell me, you're speaking my language here, Art of Charm is all about developing, maintaining healthy relationships. What do you mean by this? What's the science behind this making you healthier? The data is actually amazing. So one of the best predictors of longevity and happiness and contentment throughout life is the strength and quality and number of your close relationships with people. So yeah, like I approach health from my fundamental core belief is that life should be awesome. Like you should be crushing it. You should be happy. And the reason to be healthy is to make that true right? You want to feel strong. You want to feel like you have energy. And one of the pinnacle, most important aspects of health seems to be your relationships. And I know from experience, and I'm sure you do too, that those are one of the things that makes you incredibly happy as well. So it's like a double win there. But yeah, the side of science is, it's shocking actually. Just look it up. Sure. I mean, at AOC, our core product, if you will, we have an online product called Social Capital that teaches networking and relationships. But our boot camps here that we teach, the week-long programs, they're all about creating those and maintaining those relationships and deepening those relationships. So uh, yeah, maybe we need to throw a little uh, bullet point on our sales page about how people who have successful relationships live longer and live happier. I'm sure that's uh, something that most of us want. I am curious though, so many people that I know are counting calories, they're doing all of this. Is that something that you do? Because I know going back to you being an overachiever seems like something that you could have gotten into at one point. I'm wondering if you still do that. <laughs> I do not. Last time I moved, when I moved from San Francisco to New York, I, I found my journals. So there was a time when I recorded everything I ate for like years and years and years. And gosh, that was horrifying to see all those. But no, that is no longer something that I do. If somebody's new to watching what they eat and focusing on healthy food. I do recommend people keep a habit journal. I think recording what you eat for a while and recording sort of the things that you do most often can be super valuable because a lot of people just need to bring that awareness. They're just not quite sure. But I don't support calorie counting for a number of reasons. A big one is that they're super inaccurate. People don't realize that calorie counts on food packages are legally allowed to be 20% wrong. Which is enormous. Which is enormous. And same thing with exercise. Like you're not, you don't really know how many calories you're burning. You need to know your basal metabolism. It's just, it's sort of silly. Some people still find value in it in that they can 
that keeps track a little bit of like the volume of food they're eating. But for me, I don't think that makes my life awesome. And so I've developed sort of my home court habits so that I don't have to count calories. I, I know pretty much exactly what I do and don't do that keeps me at my weight that I want to be and feeling the way I want to feel. So I believe that if you dial in your habits well enough, it's not necessary. Well, you just killed an entire app market there. I agree with you. I always suspected that the reason that people count calories, because the people I, that I know that do that are, are maybe a little bit like this, it's just something for people to do so that they feel like they're doing more, right? These are the same guys that are like, oh, I wear blue blockers every day. They're constantly optimizing, which is great. I love it. I love the hacking and everything. But I feel like the counting calories is kind of a, a geek factor thing and not really that necessary. Like if they stop counting calories tomorrow, they would feel anxious about not counting calories, but their level of health, weight, whatever, would not change at all. 100%. And I actually find that more often than not, it adds to anxiety because, you know, if you go over and then you have to make up for it somehow or you're a bad person. And yeah, it, it's for me, it's definitely like diminishing returns. Like to some extent, it is very nice to be aware of what you're eating, but you can just drive yourself crazy doing stuff like that. You mentioned that you found your old journals. Do you still journal about the health and nutrition stuff or is was that just calorie counting? No, that was just me trying to be skinny. I'm <laughs> Right now, my journal is my blog. Gotcha. So you don't necessarily recommend that people listening to this bust out a journal and track what they're eating or anything like that or track their exercise or any of that? No, like I said, though, if people are interested in adapting this sort of approach to food and you've never done it before and you aren't necessarily sure what volume of food you're eating. Because a lot of people, I mean, this is a real problem. People eat massive portion sizes. I mean, in America, it's ridiculous. So if you're new to this stuff, there's certainly some value in taking an inventory for a couple of weeks. But no, I mean, I, I don't necessarily think it's, it should be a lifelong thing or something that's even that valuable for somebody. If somebody has dieted for a long time and they know calorie counts really well already, like you're not going to get any more. You're just going to drive yourself crazy. Daria, this has been super interesting. I love the habit formation. Of course, yes, food journals do suck. And I'm so glad you let us all off the hook there. But is there anything I haven't asked you that you want to make absolutely sure you convey to the AOC family? I think the biggest point that I'm always trying to convince people of is that the psychology is really what's holding people back. I mean, you know, we tend to blame time, we tend to blame energy, we tend to blame our work, our partners, whatever. But at the end of the day, it's in our heads and most of the roadblocks we create are in there and are solvable and not through pain, but through pleasure by creating these habits and being super open-minded about what's possible. And it's, it's actually a really liberating thing when you think about it, because when you think about the prevailing paradigm, it's like you have to not eat what you want eat like a bunch of boring stuff that doesn't taste good, like work your butt off in the gym until you're like sweating and, and miserable. And then in some distant future, you'll be happy. And what I'm telling you is that A, that doesn't work. And B, if you actually just try to be happy now and eat foods that both make you feel good and taste good and you enjoy with the people you love and do activities that you love, that you'll actually get the results and you might actually be happy soon, like today, you might, you'll be happy today. You'll actually enjoy what you're eating today. And the results actually come and they stay. 
it's a crazy thing to think about it, that we're all doing this insanity completely backwards. So I think that's, that's my moment of Zen right there. Thank you so much. Super enlightening. And I love that we can take this and not make it about dieting, but make it about any sort of habit change. However, the coincidental timing of the holidays, New Year's, and maybe not eating the equivalent of a Big Mac every day for breakfast. I even thought about taking a picture of what I ate yesterday for breakfast, but then I moralized and felt shame and didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was gonna send it to you and go, what about this? And then I just felt like, no, I feel disgusting even looking at this right now. Yeah, so thank you so much for this. Really, really enlightening and useful episode. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Super interesting stuff. Really love the habit psychology. That is just our bag here at AOC. Really well explained. Daria is just great at conveying this information in an easily digestible format. Great fit for the show. And a great big thank you to Daria for coming on today. The book is called Foodist. And we'll have that linked up in the show notes as well for this episode. And if you enjoyed this, don't forget to thank Daria on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well. Remember, you can tap your phone screen and the show notes should pop right up. I'm also on Twitter. I post a lot of things that never make it to the show articles, insights, and it's a great way to get in touch with me and producer Jason. I'm at The Art of Charm on Twitter. Our boot camps, that's our live programs that we run out in LA. You can check those out, bootcamp.theartofcharm.com. The live program is by far and away my favorite part of running AOC. Really spectacular results, spectacular guys, and I love everybody that joins the AOC family. Just such a joy to have that in my life. I also want to encourage you to join us here in this AOC challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or if you're in the States, you can simply text the word charmed, C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444. The challenge is about improving your networking skills, improving your connection skills, and inspiring those around you to develop a relationship with you, both personal and professional reasons. We'll also email you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show if you text up there. I'm also doing regular videos with drills and exercises. Those will help you move forward and develop some new great habits. It will make you a better networker, a better connector, and a better thinker. And you know that's our jam here at AOC. So just go to theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or you can text the word charmed in the U.S., C-H-A A-R-M-E-D to the number 33444. For full show notes for this and all previous episodes of the show, head on over to theartofcharm.com slash podcast. This episode of The Art of Charm was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor, and show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead, tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else either in person or shared on the web. So stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at theartofcharmpodcast.com.